what people thought pulled us in, what they thought a story was, what they thought was grabbing us was completely wrong. Everything I'd been taught about story, everything I'd been taught about writing, everything I'd been taught about what yanked me in was just, could not have been more wrong. And at that point, when I was really diving into, well, what does pull us in? Well, what does make something, I just, I'm dying to know what happens next. You know, I'm turning the pages. I'm, I'm only stopping at night because, you know, I'm falling asleep and I'm hoping I'm falling asleep, you know, before four in the morning. Because literally, it turns out biologically, you are in that world. When you're lost in a story, same areas of your brain light up that would light up if you're doing what the protagonist is doing. And what I noticed was, was that pulled up, what pulled us in was the opposite, like I said, of what had been taught. And that what actually pulls us in and what writers and storytellers and anyone who's purveying a story needs to know is not only the opposite of what's usually taught, but it's usually what people are told not to do. Welcome back to another episode of the Style Frame Saturdays podcast, the podcast dedicated to ideation, visual storytelling, and concept development as it pertains to an animated production. Usually we break down our guest's favorite style frames, but today we're talking all things story with our first special guest, Lisa Cron. Lisa is a story coach and the author of Wired for Story, Story Genius, and Story or Die. She's here today to help us truly understand what a story is and why it matters in our style frames. So let's dive in. Hello, Lisa. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today and for being our first special guest. Um, How are you? How's everything going? Everything's just peachy. And thank you so much for having me. There's nothing I love more than talking stories. So here we are. Here we are. No, exactly. Well, I'm so happy that, you know, you were able to, you know, make some time in your schedule to join us today because, um, you know, I've been such a big fan of your work for several years now. I would say, you know, pre-pandemic, you know, I was that's when I was first introduced to your books and your work as a story coach. And, um, you know, I've just, I've fallen in love with how you sort of you know, approach story and, and, and help people figure out, you know, the best way to sort of tell a story, but, you know, um, for anyone who is unfamiliar with you, you know, would you mind telling our audience a little bit about yourself and your career as an author and a story coach? Sure. Um, I have worked with story my whole entire life. I left college and went straight into publishing. Um, I spent years, about a decade in publishing. Then I started to work reading for the studios, reading books to film. And something that I noticed throughout my career, because even when I first started, you know, working in publishing, one of the things you could do no matter what your job was, was you could take home manuscripts and read them and then evaluate them. And something that I noticed over the years, and then especially when I was reading books to film for, you know, Warner Brothers and the William Morris Agency and, you know, a whole bunch of different studios, was that what people thought pulled us in, what they thought a story was, what they thought was grabbing us was completely wrong. That, <laughs> that everything I'd been taught about story, everything I'd been taught about writing, everything I'd been taught about what yanked me in was just could not have been more wrong. And at that point, when I was really diving into, well, what does pull us in? Well, what does make something, I just, I'm dying to know what happens next. You know, I'm turning the pages. I'm, I'm only stopping at night because, you know, I'm falling asleep and I'm hoping I'm falling asleep, you know, before four in the morning, because, you know, when you're, you know how that is when you're, when you're like inside a story and you're pulled in, it's like, you might've been exhausted when you lay down to kind of one more chapter before I go to sleep. Suddenly you forget what even being tired feels like. (laughs) It's like you are just because literally it turns out biologically you are in that world. When you're lost in a story, same areas of your brain light up that would light up if you're doing what the protagonist is doing. And what I noticed was, was that pulled up, what pulled us in was the opposite, like I said, of what had been taught and that what actually pulls us in and what writers and storytellers and anyone who's purveying a story needs to know is not only the opposite of what's usually taught, But it's usually what people are told not to do and that there's so much that you have to know even before you get to page one or word one or word one, if it's even a tweet or a, you know, or even an image. At that point, um, I was very lucky because I I was teaching at UCLA in the extension writers program and I was coaching writers and I started to think no one else is teaching this. Like literally, and it's, it's not like, oh, I'm the smartest person in the world at all, but just no one was teaching it. And so I started, you know, writing it out. And at that point, luckily for me, neuroscience was just burgeoning. It was everywhere. And there's nothing more interesting 
the neuroscience then you know as the as the as the newsreel whoever remembers what a newsreel is i don't even know you know newsreel producer at the beginning of citizen kane said you know nothing's more interesting than finding out what makes people tick and so the neuroscience of story and of what pulls us in and of what we're looking for and of what needs to be in the story and what literally is pulling us in in the story went from being well this is like my theory or i think i've stumbled on this or i'm not sh- i'm not you know it's it's a theory to wait this is biological fact this wow. is not only how we respond to stories you know in novels or movies or tv shows or you know whatever we're binge watching but this is what we respond to in one-on-one communication this is how we make sense of the we think in story it's how we make sense of the world we make sense of everything through story it's built into the architecture of our brain and that's why it felt doubly important to sort of get the word out there because it's not only important to figure out how to create a story again whether you're creating a you know a novel or a tv show or a pitch or or anything something visual you know as well so that you can pull people in but it's just as important to understand how it works so that you're not seduced by stories in a way that you do not even realize that you're being pulled in hello qanon you know i mean <laughs> we are affected by stories every minute of every day whether we're aware of it or not and the sad truth is usually we're not aware yeah no that's i mean that's what's been uh, so great about your books and and why i'm so drawn to them why i've literally read all of them. The last one, I think I've gotten like halfway through. So I still have a little bit more to go there. But the neuroscience aspect of it is what's really fascinating to me that, you know, you read in a lot of books that like, you know, in terms of marketing as well, that, you know, like, you know, it's all this sort of neuroscience based research that shows like, you know, like, well, you know, relating to sort of your social tribe and how you resonate with them and how story is an aspect that kind of like connects us all sort of from a survival standpoint, like mm-hmm. that's what's just so interesting about all of this. And so the fact that like you you are sort of directly saying like, you know, there's a reason why these stories hook you in and this is the why. I was just like, oh my gosh, I got to speak to Lisa at some point because it's just, it's great. And I love how you approach it too. Your your, your writing style is so conversational. It feels like as if I'm like right there with you as you're sort of explaining it or like a student of yours in like a course of some sort. Um, so, you know, yeah, I couldn't be more of a bigger fan of your books and, and everything that you've just described. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And I think it's so important to really understand story on that level because since it is how we make sense of the world i think it allows us to be kinder to ourselves i think so much of what we've been taught in terms of to look at ourselves and how we see the world and what we put on ourselves and what the world puts on us is based on a false model mm-hmm. and the more that we're really aware of how we process information and the way that we make sense of things is really based on you know one thing and one thing only and that's what our past experience has taught us those things mean what our past experience has taught us how the world works and the way that we need to interact with each other too and not to sound you know not to sound to completely uh like like everything is trying to get something but to get our needs met right Absolutely. so it's not, not completely transactional on that level but that's what we're looking for and we're wired to do that we're wired to want everybody to like us you know um we're wired to 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 want you want you know down, down to the the barista at Starbucks we want people to like us cuz we're wired and this is sort of the the scary sad part of it which is we're wired to live in a world we don't live in anymore we're oh, wired wow. to live in a, in a world where i mean just to, to not to go all you know historical on you but we're wired to live in a world that existed about 100,000 years ago and the two things that were constant then were one we could only know about 150 people a dunbar's number which is 150 we're, our brains are still wired to 150 that sort of the max even tangentially of people we can keep track of but back then it was 150 people forever that's it it wasn't self selecting like it wow. is now and we're wired to live in a world where nothing changed right if you were born 100,000 years ago or i don't know 99,000 years ago it would be the exact same world right there's no buildings there's no culture there's no religion god forbid you know there's there's nothing on that level so that the way that we're wired is when we're born we're born looking for 
What do I need to do in order to get my needs met? And once we realize that in our, to use that word, tribe, you know, in our family, we don't think, oh, this is how my family does it, but other families do it different. We go, this is how people are. And once we learn that, it gets encoded in our brains as permanent. That is the way the world is, not just that's the way these people are, or that's the way it is now, or that's the way it is in our culture. It's that's how the world is, which is why we think, what's wrong with those other people who are doing things differently? Right. That's the tough thing. And knowing that and how deeply that's rooted in us can really help us both be kind to ourselves and then turn around and be able to sort of question it when things that we've learned as, you know, as children and then inculcated as permanent turn out not to be true, which is what I often call a misbelief. Misbelief is something we totally think is true. Life taught it to us just turns out not to actually be true. Right. And that's right. the that's the that's the bread and butter of stories. That's yes, story. yes. Well, I'm so glad you touched upon that because I I, you know, having read your books, I have prepared a few questions that I wanted to ask you because um, you know, our audience is typically um motion designers and animators, mm-hmm. um sort of visual storytellers. And, um, you know, for anyone who's tuning in, who's unfamiliar with what, uh, you know, style frames and what style frame Saturdays is all about, you know, style frames are a small but sort of vital part to the animation and motion design pipelines. And it's where sort of the designers of teams are figuring out the tone and style of a piece and how to truly uh, visually represent the story that's about to be told. And so obviously, you know, the connection then between visual storytelling and storytelling is obviously the story. Um, and with animators and motion designers being visual storytellers, I kind of wanted to use our time today to focus on the story aspect of visual storytelling. Um, so, you know, to kind of go back a little bit, you touched, you had touched upon a few of some of the elements that you've, you know, uh, written about in your books and that I would love to get into, um, further into the discussion, but to sort of kick things off. I'd love to start at like the very beginning with a refresher of like, you know, like, well, what exactly is a story? Okay. Let me give you two of the longer form and then the shorter form. Sure. Um, So the longer form is a story is about what happens to someone who's in pursuit of a deceptively difficult goal, meaning it's way harder than it looks like it's going to be at the outset and how that person changes internally as a result which is what allows them to either solve the problem or see it for something very different than they thought it was in the beginning. So in other words, stories about how what happens, which is the plot, affects someone, that's the protagonist, and everything that happens over there in the plot gets its meaning and emotional weight solely on how it affects the protagonist, specifically in the moment, on the page, or in the illustration, as they go after this tough story problem or goal that they have they have no choice but to deal with, right? Story problem is something that happens and they do not have, some, it's not a problem they can avoid. They can't, you know, which is what we would love to do, right? You got a big problem, let's take a nap, a nice little nap and we'll wake up and it'll just be gone. It'll, it will have resolved itself all by itself. And of course, not only does that happen, but it tends to get worse while we were asleep. We should have just dealt with it to begin with. And then how dealing with that helps somebody change internally. And that internal change is what the story is about. If I teach anything, it's that the story is not about the plot. It's not about what happens. It's about how what happens affects somebody internally and challenges and changes something in their belief system which is what I call their misbelief. Something that people come in, they believe it, life taught it to them, they know it's true, they don't ever question it because it's just you know part of that, that lens that they've got. By that time, it's relegated to what's known as their cognitive unconscious. They're not thinking about it. They just make that assumption that it's, that it's true. They never questioned it. And now what's happening in the story present is forcing them to question it because it isn't, it isn't working. It's keeping them from getting what they want. So that's what a story is. In a smaller nutshell, the smallest nutshell that I could ever stuff it into is that a story is about how somebody deals with a problem they can't avoid and something in their belief system has to shift in order for them to solve it or see it as something very different than what they thought it was to begin with. That's what a story is. It's, and I'm going to mangle this quote, but it's T.S. Eliot who said something like, the end of our exploring is to return back to where we started and to see the place for the first time. That's what happens. We see things differently. That's what story's about. It's about a changing belief system to help us survive. It's internal, 
not external. And that is what's pulling us in. What's pulling us in isn't the beautiful drawing or the fancy writing or the rip-roaring plot. It's how it's affecting somebody in the moment, on the page, in the story, in terms of that internal struggle. What's it costing them to have to deal with it? All story is, to put it in business terms, story is an emotional cost-benefit analysis of taking a particular course of action. Except it's not neutral. <laughs> You're yes. feeling it. It's not neutral. Nothing in a story is neutral. As I'm very fond of saying, my, my sort of catchphrase these days is, there must be blood. If there's not blood, and that's, you know, sometimes literally, always figuratively, <laughs> gotta cost you something. If there's no blood, they're sitting there listening and going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And what they're really thinking about is, I wonder what I should have for dinner. I'm kind of hungry. In other words, they are not paying attention. Right, right. I think the first time I sort of read that in one of your books, I, you know, like it was such a light bulb moment that I was sort of just like, oh, that makes so much sense that like I'm relating to this experience and it's as if I'm experiencing it. That's why I'm so like, I can't put this book down or I can't, you know, I can't wait until the end. You know, I have to read another chapter. I can't just like, you know, stop here, you know, like I got to I need more, you know. Um, but based on what you just said, though, it, it's pretty clear then that the protagonist is is key to an impactful story. Oh, yeah. um, you also mentioned in your in your book, Wired for Story, that stories are about how we change rather than the world around us. Um, and that, that's what you were just saying with regards mm -hmm. to sort of the internal struggle versus the external struggle. Um, so based off of everything you've just mentioned, you know, it sounds like we're sort of sculpting, you know, what's important to our protagonist, the lens through which we're experiencing the story, mm -hmm. which I know you sort of say from time to time in your books as well. Um, so as storytellers, you know, how do we know what's important to our protagonist? Well, that really is the key thing. And this is what, as I'm really fond of saying, if the writing world, meaning the world that gives advice to writers was a person, I would punch it in the face happily and go to jail, which is a metaphor because I actually do not want to go to jail because almost everything it says is wrong. And the biggest thing, or one of the biggest things that it says that could not be more wrong is about backstory. Use backstory sparingly and then only when the reader needs to know something. First of all, you never put anything in because the reader or the viewer needs to know it. You put it in because the, the protagonist is struggling with it. But the truth about story is, and it's, it's, it's also counterintuitive. You know, if you're watching a story or binge watching something or, or, or whatever it would be, you know, you start on page one, frame one, and you go through to the end. And it's easy to think, well, that's how you start creating it, right? You start on page. And that could not be less true. All stories begin en medias res, meaning, you know, fancy Latin way of saying in the middle of the thing, but not just the middle of the scene, as sometimes it used to be said in screenwriting, mm -hmm. in the middle of the story, meaning, you know, frame one or page one is actually the first page of the second half. You have to create the first half before you can get to the second half. And that means really digging in and creating that lens through which your protagonist is going to be viewing things. But it's not a general lens. That's another big mistake that the writing world says. I'll go to a character bio of your characters. And then you do some sort of birth to, you know, when the story starts bio that is just as flat. I mean, it ends up being what most stories are. Sadly, you know, manuscripts, I don't mean the ones that are out there, although often I'm reading a book right now that's sort of this, is nothing but a bunch of things that happen. Mm -hmm. You've got to go back and figure out what is this about? So the first question always is, what am I trying to say? What point am I trying to make? All stories make a point beginning on the first page, one point, one point, one point only. It grows, it escalates, it complicates, but it's one point. And you got to know what that is. And then you got to go into your protagonist and say, what is that? And again, the phrase I use is misbelief. What is that misbelief that's keeping your protagonist from realizing that aha thing that they're going to need to realize toward the end that is going to, you know, as we said, either allow them to solve the problem or see it as something very different. And a misbelief is something that's not, it's not logistic. It's not like, you know, I thought the world was flat and I hope you're sitting down because it's actually round. Who knew? You know, I'm shocked. Or, you know, I thought she was my mother and it turns out she's my sister. You know, someone's got some splaining to do. Now, you know, those things can be true, but that's not what a misbelief is. A misbelief is a misbelief about human nature. It's about how we treat each other. You know, it's something like, you know, life taught me early in life 
that the nicer someone is to you, the more they seem like they really want to get to know the real you. It's only so they can manipulate you and get you to do what they want you to do, right? Now, obviously, that's not true. Hopefully, I hope. I don't think that's true. Not of everybody anyway. But if you had that belief and misbeliefs come in when, when we're children, they come in back in that time we were talking about before when we're really trying to figure out what do I need to do to get my needs met? And kids and kid logic, people sometimes will write as kids and they'll go, oh, kids are so simplistic. It's like, no, bad books written for kids are simplistic. <laughs> Kids are complicated. Kid logic is more complicated and raw and sophisticated than adult logic because they haven't learned euphemisms yet. They don't know what we're not supposed to talk about. And they're trying to figure out what they need to do again to get their needs met. Because, you know, in, in our lives, like you and me, if somebody is like a total jerk and, and does that thing, is only getting trying to get to know us to use us, we're going to figure it out and go, that guy's a jerk. I'm not going to deal with him anymore. When you're a kid, if it's mom or dad, it's like mom or dad could decide to move away and we come home from school and they wouldn't have left a forwarding address. They have to like us. So we have to figure out what to do to make them happy. And we just assume that's what we need to do for everybody. And that's where misbeliefs come in. And that's what story tends to be, which is someone comes in with a misbelief and in a story, the other thing that writers and people, when they think of stories often forget to ask is, what does that protagonist, what does that main character enter the story wanting? What do they want? What are they after? Because they walk onto the page with a fully formed agenda to get what they want. Even if, let's say it's a, you know, it's a romance and they're not going to meet the person they want till chapter three. And you're going, well, what are they like, psychic? <laughs> How would they know? But it's what they want in a person, what they think they want in a mate or in a significant other. That's what they come on wanting. And then they assume that person's going to fulfill that need. And let's face it, often they're wrong. And that's sort of the point of the story. But, you know, we don't need to go to that. But but those are the things that you really want, need to know first. Because we need to be inside that character's head. And we need to know how they're making sense of it. And the way you, me, anybody makes sense of anything, again, is from the past. I read a book recently by a neuroscientist out here in L.A. whose name I... I I'm not going to try to pronounce because I will totally botch it, but it's called your brain is a time machine. And basically he says, the reason we have memory is in the reason we have brains is to record past events in order to predict the future. Mm -hmm. Think about it. How can I never understand how writers or storytellers or anyone can come and go, yeah, I'm starting on page one of it and I'm writing forward. It's like, well, but why are they doing what they're doing? We don't come for what we come for. Why? Why are they doing what they're doing? What meaning are they reading into? Where is that? How can you do that? It's like saying, I'm going to write a 300 page novel about the most important turning point event in someone's life who I know nothing about. I'll just push my protagonist onto the page with amnesia and then I'll figure it out. It doesn't work that way. It's layered. There's so many layers and they all start in the past and you got to look at that first. And the last thing I'll say on that is because people think it starts in the beginning, they feel like, I haven't really started writing yet. I haven't really gotten to the story yet, right? This is pre-writing. This is research. And it's not. This is the process. This is writing. It isn't research. It is creating it. Because almost all of it comes onto the page with books. I was working with a writer once who said, I, said, I want to see what you're talking about. And she was reading Sharp Objects, which is Jillian Flynn's first book. And she said, I was highlighting everything, you know, who wrote Gone Girl. She said, I was highlighting everything that was like backstory and the internalities of characters struggling with what to do. She said, I'm halfway through the book and I've highlighted 60, that's six zero percent of the book. 60% of the book was backstory because, you know, as Faulkner said, the past isn't dead. It isn't even past. It's the most seminal layer of story. All story logic comes from the past. Your, your protagonist's subjective past. Wow. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, I mean, you summarized like a whole bunch of chapters from your books, like, so just like perfectly right there, because, um, you know, I don't even think myself knew that, you know, like how important the backstory was. I think for myself sometimes as, as a visual storyteller that, you know, trying to really figure out my protagonist, you know, it's, it's a challenge. Um, so I can only imagine as a writer, like you were saying, you know, you're, you've got like a blank page in front of you, um, that you're sort of like, okay, where do I start? Um, 
but the, the backstory has to be rich and, you know, and that's what helps you get, you know, past that first page or past the blank canvas, um, for the visual folks. Um, so to hear how important that backstory is to have you sort of reiterate that, you know, it just, it, it makes so much sense. Um, even when you watch some films, you know, you sort of, you're, you're thrown right into action sometimes and you're sort of like, where are we? What, what's going on here? But, you know, it's like what you just said, it's, it's that backstory and it's sort of setting the stage for like what we're about to sort of go on the journey of with the protagonist. Well, the backstory tells you why it matters. Right. Because if, it, if, it, if, if it's just something happening, birth, death, fall, the Roman Empire, it, who cares? I mean, right. it sounds, it's like, it's like objectively dramatic is an oxymoron. If it's objective, it can't be dramatic by definition. Dramatic is what's <laughs> going to happen to someone. I mean, I'll tell you, my son is a, is a, is a, is a filmmaker. And he was telling me recently that they had brought in, there was a film they were making. And they said, yeah, we, we brought the screenwriter back because we needed more backstory. And he said, because the story present is what makes the unconscious conscious. And he did not mean that, God forbid, in a Freudian, Jungian, or even worse, woo-woo sort of way. He meant it like literally by the time we're looking at the world in a particular way, it has been relegated to our cognitive unconscious. The, the job of the story present is to force that to the surface, is to force somebody to see that mistake that they're making, question it, and then shift. That's the point of story. Because we come to story, you, me, and everybody asking that one question in our cognitive unconscious, which is, what am I going to learn here that's going to help me make it through the night? What am I going to learn? Really not so much about surviving in the physical world because we kind of got that covered. All of us have done it. Uh, the one thing every single one of us has completely in common is that from birth until right now, we have survived in the physical world because here we are. We've done that. We're good at that. We want to know what goes on beneath the surface. We're looking for what goes on beneath the surface. Story is the difference between what we say out loud and what we're really thinking right? Because which one's more interesting? Which one is juicier? And which one is more revealing? Oh, that's a good well, point. That's, that's a really good point. <laughs> well, speaking of the backstory a bit, you know, you've, you've also mentioned in your book, Wired for Story, that the specifics of the story matter too. That, you know, and to quote what, what you wrote, um, story takes a general situation, idea, or premise and person personifies it via the very specific um, so as we're talking about the backstory, how do we know which details are relevant and worth revealing as part of our protagonist story versus what's like you were just saying, just these sort of objective moments? I think, I mean, let me talk about two things there, if, if you don't mind, because one of the biggest mistakes that people make, whether they're storytellers, I work now with people in the business world as well, or just people that you talk to is they mistake the general for the specific. Because the specific is very specific. If you think of the general, the abstract, the conceptual, they do not exist. We made them up. There is no there there. There's no legs to them. You can't anticipate what might happen from a general. You can't even anticipate what somebody actually means by a general. Because, you know, if we're talking about, we're talking about the kind of love a family feels for each other, that is going to be what I'm going to feel and what somebody who believes in QAnon feels is going to be vastly different. We are going to have massively different definitions of the exact same very big, you know, uh, uh, concept of, of love or loyalty or whatever that would be. It comes into the, the as specific as possible. But to answer your question, it's because when you know what your point is. When you figure out what that misbelief is, when you go back and you're creating that protagonist, that character, you're only looking at that. I mean, yeah, people do stuff, you know, I mean, we all do stuff 24-7. You know, if you had to put what the character did 24-7, nobody would even read one, one page of it because it would take, a you know, a thousand pages to get that done. And basically, who cares? You're looking for what is that internal struggle? And the struggle comes onto the page because in the moment, the character in every scene, your character is forced to make a difficult decision. And that decision is basically, I like to call these days of this versus that. Here's how I see the world. Here's what I want. Here's what I need to do. How am I going to bridge those two? What am I going to give up to get, to get that? And that's where backstory comes in. It comes in. That's how emotion gets onto the page, which is, Via that struggle, emotion doesn't get onto the page via, you know, saying they're happy, they're sad, their heart is pounding. And although one of the things that you guys have in something visual that we do not have in prose is that 
when you're being visual, body language does count, especially mm -hmm. in film. It does. You can convey a lot in body language that you absolutely, positively, 100% cannot and do, need, want, do not even want to try to convey in, in, in prose. It just doesn't do it at all. There was a scene in, if you ever watched any of Aziz Ansari's Master of None, yeah. he had, there was, I don't know if you, if any of you saw, there was, it was, I forget what season it was. It might've been the second. And he was in love with that, that woman in Italy. And did you, do you know the, the, and he, and he, and she was in New York and he saw her and he was at, I think it was, it was, it was Bobby Cannavale, you know, his party. And, and she says, well, maybe I'll see you tomorrow. And she's married to someone else. And he says, yeah, okay, maybe. And he's in a, he's in a cab. He's in the backseat of a cab, which is obviously where you are in a cab. And there's some music playing. And it felt to me like it was, I should go back and watch it again and, and tape it. And, 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 you know, and, and, and with a, with a stopwatch and see how long it was. It felt to me like it was a three minute scene with no dialogue, no voiceover, just the song and watching his face register that he was probably never going to see her again and how much he cared about her and what was brilliantly done. You couldn't capture that in prose. You absolutely couldn't. You could describe every nuance of every expression he had and people would go, what is the point? Why are you telling me this? Like, I don't care. Is there going to be a test? I don't know what any of this means. But bodies speak body to body. So you do have that ability in, in you know, when you're doing something visually to convey something that way. In prose, it's all internal thought. It's all the internal struggle in life they say never let him see a sweat biggest lie one of the biggest lies we're ever taught along with sticks and stones which is the biggest lie we're ever taught sticks and stones could break my bones but words could never hurt me i'm like hit me and break a bone i'd rather have that <laughs> have you hurt me with words because that goes forever that doesn't go away and nobody believes you don't do that but um but yeah i mean i mean that is at the end of the day that's what really grabs us you know that internal struggle is is always what's going to pull us in because the never let him see a sweat stories are about sweating i once had a, a student at ucla and she said she said um i know on the surface i look really put together and she really did i mean she looked like one of those people who just had everything going perfectly she said i know i look really put together but inside i'm a raging mess and i'm trying to keep all of you from seeing it stories about the raging mess inside. That's wow. what for. Yeah, no. Wow. I mean, well, you you you've indirectly pointed to it. You didn't directly say it, but it, you know, there's there's this sense of sort of like cause and effect, like, you know, even just with the sort of simple sticks and stones, but, you know, words can never hurt me thing. Like there is there is a cause and effect like you just said with, you know, you internalize what's been said to you you know, throughout your life. And it, it it's sounding like, you know, these specifics and the backstory and what's been internalized and, and the misbelief that the protagonist holds is a lot of the cause and effect that has happened to them. Um, so I was just wondering if you could kind of go into detail a little bit about, you know, sort of like what the cause and effect trajectory of the protagonist is. Okay, well, cause and effect, I mean, in all story, like all life is cause and effect. So cause and effect is character comes in and they want something, but there's a problem. There's a reason why they can't get it. There's something that they have to deal with. And scene by scene by scene, everything they do to make it better only makes it worse because what they're trying to do is achieve their agenda. I mean, that that's what every scene is. A scene, people are often taught to write a scene as if a scene is, is something separate, right? As if a scene is something in a vacuum. And a scene is not. A scene is simply a unit of story. And scene by scene by scene by scene, they are trying to bring that agenda to fruition. It's one thing, and it doesn't. They do something. <laughs> it is a cause. <laughs> it has an effect. Something happens. And usually what happens, as all stories are, which is, I thought this one thing was going to happen and something else happened instead because they don't get what they want. They don't solve it easily. If they did great for them sucks for us because <laughs> now the story's over. So, you know, Oh, well, so that's what it is. Each thing triggers the next thing. Each thing is this. And because of this, that this happened, but as a result, there was this. So it's a constant cause and effect. The, one of the biggest mistakes that writers make when they're when they're coming up with stories, and this is whether you're being visual or you're writing prose, is they do it top down. 
as opposed to bottom up. Stories are bottom up. Characters try to solve a problem and when they only make it worse, they have specifically triggered something, which is the effect of what they did. And now they've got to deal with that. And in each scene, character has a small aha moment. They realize something. They've tried to make whatever change it is, or they've gotten what they thought they wanted. They've realized it didn't feel like what they thought it was. Or now they think, oh, good, now I've got the ability to do X. They go forward, and then that's challenged in the next scene, bit by bit by bit. The problem with doing it top down, which is the way the story world, the writing world talks about it, is let's do something dramatic. So I don't know. We'll have, there was one time for, for some reason, like every writer I was working with, not every, but several had out of the blue, the main character's mom died. And it's like, mom isn't even in the story. Like why is mom dying? And it's like, well, I wanted her to go through something painful. Well, what does that have to do with your story? Well, nothing, but you know, I wanted her to, to show that or they'll, or they'll put a scene in to show that the character is nice or they're friendly or that they'd help some kid we assume that everything is going to play forward. We assume when we're reading or watching, watch this when you're watching, that everything is there on a need-to-know basis. If I didn't need to know it, you wouldn't waste my time telling me. So we expect it to play forward. We expect everything to happen that happens to have a consequence, to play forward. So when you do something that doesn't play forward, not part of a cause and effect, not part of anything, not only have you stopped the story at worst or stopped it at, just at best, but when it goes forward, first of all, you've stopped the momentum. And second of all, we assumed that you put that in there for a reason. Mm -hmm. So we assume it's going to have a consequence over here. And we're waiting for that to happen because we haven't forgotten it because we know it was there for a reason. And when it wasn't, we're making up our own reasons. And then soon everything falls apart. I mean, as I would say, like, ask yourself, how many movies have you seen where you think, oh, my God, the movie in my head was so much better <laughs> And what I saw on the screen, like, how could they have not known? It's, it's because that's what we're doing. We assume, I mean, we have so many tacit assumptions as, 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 as story consumers. I mean, that's the, the irony is, and sort of the frustrating part is we're wired for story. We're wired to respond to story. We're wired to be sucked into story. We're wired to have certain hardwired expectations that no one ever taught us, but we're not wired to be able to to create a story that meets all of those standards that we have to learn. That is learned behavior. It's why one of my favorite quotes was Fran, Flannery O'Connor, who was a great Southern writer. She said, I find most people know what a story is until they sit down to write one. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. That's such a great point. Yeah. Well, and as you're talking about all this, it's, it's becoming more and more clear to me that you know, the approach to story is just so not linear. I mean, you, you start here, you go all the way back there, you kind of, you know, kind of go out in this direction, come back center up, oh, maybe you head out in this direction. And like you said, you know, because there's such a neuroscience aspect behind it all, like, even though sort of figuring out that story isn't very linear, even though what, once we read it or we're sort of experiencing it, it is very linear because we've obviously sort of organized well, everything together. Right. But, you know, even just you talking about the story specifics and, and, and this stuff, um, you know, I think you've even mentioned, and I think I've read it, you know, in a couple of other books too, that like, you know, in such a day and age where we've just got information overload all the time, like our brains are trying to sort of make sense of everything that's getting thrown at it. I mean, knowing that like we were only supposed to know about 150 people in our lifetime, I'm sort of like, yeah, I can understand why now, why certain films or books or comics resonate and others don't because of, you know, everything that you're saying right now with regards to story. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it is a very specific thing and it's soothing once you get it right. When you sort of zero in on what it's about and go forward, it's soothing. And again, it's biological. What pulls us in is it's that chemical cocktail, right? There's a chemical cocktail that we instantly get. And the three elements of that are the story element is, you know, we need surprise. We thought one thing was going to happen and something else happens instead. What always grabs our attention is something is, is a surprise. It's something that was not expected. And, you know, and that, when that happens, that's dopamine pulls us in and people I think misunderstand dopamine is often said as the pleasure hormone, but it's not really pleasure. Curiosity 
that we might get something good, right? Because they always talk about like, you know, the one thing, I mean, I totally admit, I've never been addicted to anything in my life except, you know, this thing, right? And like with email, I'll tell myself on my laptop, I'm not going to look at my email. And then my hand picks up my phone and I look at it on my phone. It's like, but when you get that ding that, oh my God, I got an email, that's not the dopamine. It's like, maybe I'm going to open it up. You know, I'll have won that lottery. I didn't even buy a ticket, you know, for, I mean, it's dopamine. The next thing is something has to be at stake right? Something is at stake and that's cortisol. We're worried. There's a reason to read forward because, uh-oh, a bad thing might happen. And the third thing that is the most important and that often goes missing is that we need to care. Somebody needs to be, and this is the key thing in story, somebody needs to be vulnerable. And that is oxytocin, which is the empathy hormone. It has to matter to us that this scary thing that might happen is going to happen to somebody who we care about. And what makes us care is that they've got something that matters to them that they might lose. There's something at stake. And that's where the backstory comes in. Because with all of us, when we're thinking about, oh, I don't want something to happen, there's a reason why. And the reason why isn't the future because it hasn't happened yet. It's because of something that happened in the past that's made us want this. That, that has a lot hanging in the balance that came from the past. And now we're worried we're not going to get it. And those three things together, the dopamine, cortisol, and oxytocin is, I mean, that one of the biggest, I think it was Coleridge who said, you know, to get lost in a story demands a willing suspension of disbelief. Totally untrue because that means you got to think about it. When a story grabs you, you're toast. You are right there. That's why QAnon works. That's why, you know, that's why the right is so good at pulling people in because they're great at doing those three things and terrifying us. And now we're, you know, we're right there listening because we feel it in our bones that this horrible thing can happen. That's what grabs us. And there's no way around that. That's, that's biology because that's how survival mechanism, that's how we survived. Yeah, no, for sure. Well, I love how you're sort of looping in all of sort of the neuroscience specifics behind everything too, because you've you've beautifully sort of all the stuff that we've talked about, you've beautifully sort of summarized in your, in your latest book story for die, the, as these, everything that a story entails are sort of like encapsulates four key stages um, or is sort of told through four key stages. Mm -hmm. I might be butchering this a little bit, but um, I believe you call them the, the misbelief. Like you've talked about mm -hmm. quite a bit, the truth, the realization and the transformation. Mm -hmm. And so now knowing a little bit of the brain science behind it all, knowing that these are sort of the four stages of any story, you know, this might be a silly question, but, you know, can a story actually succeed without all four stages? I think, I mean, I think sometimes visually a story can be one image. So, I mean, I think they can all be layered into one thing if they trigger the right response within us. So, yeah, but I mean, I think often you're going in and you're looking for what is that misbelief? It, I mean, and again, the question is, are you thinking of a story that's built to lead somebody to a particular point of view? Or are you talking about, I mean, all stories do. All stories make a point. All stories change how we see things. But there's a difference between a novel and a movie and a TV show that definitely always has some kind of an agenda, always. But that isn't necessarily the the main goal, so to speak, or it's not said that way. And then you've got stuff that, you know, that are, are PSAs or political speeches or that have a very specific <laughs> agenda. And, you know, and, and they're sort of, and they're geared to a very particular audience. So at that point, yeah, you really do want to come in and go, what is that misbelief? And misbelief, if you're trying to convince somebody of something would be, what is the misbelief they have in their opinion about the change you want them to make, where you can show them, not by telling them, you never tell anybody anything because nobody listens, right? It's like with your significant other, the minute you go, we got to talk, it's like, yeah, but not now, because whatever you're going to, you're going to tell me I did something wrong. And so all I'm doing right now is trying to think of all the things you do wrong. So when you tell me I do something wrong, I can go, oh yeah, well, here's what you do. So you never make the point, you know, straight out, the story makes the point vis-a-vis -vis this arc and this internal change that the protagonist makes. But you're looking for that, that misbelief that they've got in their opinion, that if you can overturn it, they can see how the thing that you want them to do would actually give them 
make them, and I hate using this word because it's overused, but their more authentic self. It is. It will give them more of what they want rather than less. That in fact, this thing they think is helping them is actually hurting them, which is what in a story people realize about their misbelief. The thing they thought was helping them get what they want is actually keeping them from getting it. And that's that's what you're looking for. So yeah, I think, I think I think that those things can happen very quickly, in a for you sure. know, in a story. Yeah. Well, I mean, you you've you've so beautifully talked about you know what a story is, what's really important, which which really sounds like based on what you've been saying is is you know it's the protagonist and their misbelief. Um, knowing that our audience is um, sort of a group of visual storytellers, mm-hmm. you know now that we know kind of know like what a successful story is and looks like, you know, what advice might you give um, a visual artist or, you know, what advice would you give um, sort of a visual storyteller Mm -hmm. on where to start if they're trying to figure out the story that they're trying to tell? Well, I mean, it depends on if you mean what the big story writ large is going to be. And now they're bringing it down to just the style frame that's sort of like the elevator pitch of it. Or if it's already there and they're trying to bring it down to something that would be that, like, does the story exist yet or not? I think is the question first. That's yeah. The the story doesn't exist yet. So like as, as a visual sort of artist or storyteller is trying to figure out that story, you know, you know, what's the best place for them to start to kick off their sort of like uh, visual creations. I think it's actually the exact same as we've been talking about, because you've got to get that first before you can come up to the, okay, how is this going to be personified visually? Because you have to, again, you have to know what it is. You got to get those specifics down. And the great thing about something visual is by definition, it's specific, right? (laughs) By definition, you've got an illustration of it. So that really, I think helps on that level. And then I would think, I would think the biggest danger with a style frame, I could be totally wrong. I'm I'm just doing this, this other course with, with a guy who does pitch decks. Um, And I have to totally admit he has pitch decks, very, you know, very high end pitch decks for, you know, tech, tech guys who are, you know, uh, uh, startups who are trying to get VC money, which good luck these days with (laughs) it just imploded, like very bad timing for any of that. But um, but something that that he said that I thought was really good, he said, you want to be really careful that you're not just trying to be pretty. The goal isn't just yeah. to make it really pretty or here's a pretty colors or here's a pretty whatever. Who cares? It doesn't matter. He said, it's funny because <laughs> as I said to you earlier, like, like what I say to writers all the time is there must be blood. And he said, well, this is what I always say to people because we're going down to that. There has to be one point. It has to be one thing you're doing. <laughs> he said, what I say to them is, stab it till it bleeds. And I went, oh my God, I love that. I've been saying that ever since, like stab it till it bleeds. It's got to have that feeling where it's grabbing us. It's got to have that this versus that, why does this matter? And where is the danger? Where is the thing that's going to make us go, I want to know what happens next. I've got to know how this resolves or how are they going to get out of that one? I mean, that's what you're looking for because especially if it's going to be something, if you are doing it as a, you know, as an elevator pitch type thing, you want whoever you show it to go. Yeah. I mean, you're not selling the whole project. You're just making them interested enough to want to know what's next. And that really is the key thing. But again, it's one thing. The other mistake that people make is they want to pack in too much. So you look at it and you go, I get there's a lot here. Is there going to be a test? <laughs> I always think that like, do I have to memorize this? Like, is this, I don't get it. We want to get it really immediately. And we want to, and this is the key thing. We want to feel something. All story, like all life is emotion-based. If we're not feeling, we're not paying attention. And what makes us feel something is what the protagonist is feeling in the moment on the page as they're struggling with whatever this difficult situation is that they're, you know, that they're about to, about to do. And we get the, for some reason, and this is like so stupid and hackneyed, but the thing that, that popped into my head is just that a visual is, and it's, it's funny because I just saw the, there was apparently a photograph of it that before, but it was of all people, Norman Rockwell. But you may have seen the picture where it's like they're in a doctor's office and there's the mom and the nurse and the doctor. And there's this baby, you know, like with a really cute little butt like up in the air. And the doctor's got this big syringe and they're all like, oh, my God, no. And the baby's just grinning. 
because it's about to get and you just you can feel what everybody's thinking you totally get it and it's based on this one thing and it's like that told a story got it and it told us about people it told us how yeah. people see things it told us how yeah i mean it was really that's what we're looking for that's what we'll remember it's it's you don't want to pack everything in you want to get the one thing that makes us curious that that's the biggest thing Absolutely. No, that was that was such a great way to sort of like, you know, tie it all together. Um, you know, I couldn't agree more with that. And and like you said, you can do it over a series of frames or you can do it in a single frame or visual, like you just said. Um, but it's gotta have that emotion. And I think that that's yeah. the key really to this at the yeah. end of the day. Yeah. Now if they're not feeling and the emotion you want to leave them with is curiosity. I want to know what happens next. If they don't, it doesn't matter how beautiful it is. I feel that way with so many novels. You know, it's beautifully written and I have no reason ever to pick it up again because I have nothing to be curious about. And I, sure. I already get how beautifully written it is. I don't need more of that. I already got it. I want to be curious because <laughs> I want to learn something that I can use in my own life. I want that, that insight and I'm not going to get it here. Absolutely. So. Well, I mean, this has been just so wonderful, Lisa. I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us today and, and give us, you know, and our audience a bit of a refresher on story and the power of story. If people want to connect with you and learn more about your books and story coaching, you know, what's the best way for them to do so? Uh, just my website, which is simply enough, wiredforstory.com. I am there. And uh, you can email me from there if you're all curious. All my books are there with links to Amazon and, you know, all the different I shouldn't just say Amazon. I know, God, everything is Amazon, especially since the pandemic, but also other places that Jeff Bezos is not, <laughs> is not part of are there as well. It's in all the places, all the places where you want to find books. <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure to share that information, your website, um, and you know some of the other resources maybe that we have mentioned here for our audience to check out as well. But that wraps it up for today, everyone. Feel free to email us at styleframesetpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear what you think of the show. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, if you like what you see and hear here, don't forget to subscribe, like, share, and review the show on your favorite podcasting platforms as well. And lastly, come connect with us on social. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you again, Lisa, for joining us as our special guest today. And we'll see you all in the next one. Oh,